Hi, Walter. Yes. Hey, how are you doing tonight? Fantastic. Whose voice is this? Uh, this is Mike Frailer with the uh, I created the uh, Forgotten Maverick podcast, interviewing Dallas Mavericks from the past and finding out or okay. talking to them about their basketball journey and their their time in Dallas and what they're doing now. So I'm excited to talk to Love you. Love it. I'm just a huge uh, Mavericks fan with a passionate for, uh, with a passion for. NBA history and the team and uh, I've been doing this for a little over a year now and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, uh, I've talked to several, a few dozen former Mavericks, a couple of your former teammates I believe and uh, it's been it's been a great experience. Awesome, awesome Mike. I'm glad I can be a part of it. I am too. Yeah, I think the, uh, well actually maybe I, I, I did have an episode with Mike Isolino. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I, I talked with him, and then I think I talked with one guy who he may have been with a teammate of you when you were with Utah, uh, Darren Morningstar. I'm no Darren. I'm trying to think that I played with him in Dallas. I think you may have played I with him in went, Utah, maybe. In Utah. He went to Pitt, right? Didn't he go yes. to Pittsburgh? He did go to Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. I, I know him. I can't remember yeah. where I played with him. Was it Utah? I think I mean just looking in the in my internet research, it looks like um, he the the year after you were with Dallas and and uh, and then you went to to Utah. He was there for a very brief period of time, so he actually only played one one game in Utah, but it was that season. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I, I know him, and I know the name. Absolutely. Yeah, but I think as far as your your main Dallas teammates um it looks like maybe the only one uh, that I've had so far was um Mike Isolino but it's been uh it's been a lot of fun um and well, what uh, is I'm he a, doing now what's Mike Isolino doing now he is a assistant college basketball coach near Pittsburgh at uh Robert Morris University um he, he after his uh two years in the NBA he played overseas for a long time mainly in Italy I believe and then uh He's been an assistant coach at uh, in New Mexico. I know he was actually coaching women's college basketball for a little bit, but now he's an assistant men's coach at Robert Morris. Okay, good. I like Mike. He was a he was a tough kid, man. That dude was a hard worker and very tough. Yeah, I have been watching some just any footage I could find of him, and uh, it, he definitely looked like a tough player and uh, really got the most out of his ability and played really hard. He did. He really did. I, I really respected him as a teammate, and um, he was fun, man. He was, he, was, he was a fun guy to be around, too. Just what you see is what you get. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's really cool to hear. But um, I, I'm doing this to, to, find, to learn more about you and to hear about, about your experience. So typically what I like to find out when I'm talking to a former NBA player, specifically a former Dallas Maverick, is learn more about your basketball journey. So I wanted to find out just growing up in Chicago, what got you interested in the sport? You know, ironically, Mike, great question. I really came from a baseball family, and a lot of people don't know this. Um, I was named after my uncle who played Major League Baseball. He went by Walt Bond. And what happened, Michael, it, it really was a tragic story. He, he um, um, got diagnosed with leukemia as a, as a Major League Baseball player and actually died um, at 29 years old when he played for the Minnesota Twins. And so my dad named me after his brother 
And um, growing up in Chicago, we were a baseball family. You know, my uncle's picture hung over the fireplace, and Mm -hmm. it was all about baseball for our family. And I chose the University of Minnesota because I wanted to be the next day Winfield. You know, I'm going to play basketball scholarship, but my true passion is baseball. And the, the, the battle began, you know, but when you're a Chicago kid, basketball kind of runs Chicago. So up until high school, clearly baseball was my number one sport. But then I got really good in basketball. I became nationally recruited, and then I had a dilemma. So um, – I kind of decided on basketball, even after playing baseball a little bit in college. I would play in the summer with the uh, varsity baseball team at the University of Minnesota. When the best players went to Cape Cod, I would actually play with the team in the summer. And, 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 you know, I thought I did pretty good. But eventually basketball won out, not necessarily because I was better. I think basketball won out because I just had more opportunity uh, to play basketball. That's interesting. Um, I actually, you know, I'm a Dallas native, but I spent um, a good amount of time in Chicago. I lived there for four and a half years um, between 2010 and 2014. So I guess I was between the ages of 23 and 27. I was up there. I loved it. What part of the city did you live in? Southside. I'm a oh. Southside kid. And, you know, my we lost my dad to prostate cancer, but my mom and dad were married for 30, 40 years. And, um, my mom still lives in the same house I grew up in. So oh, wow. I'm a Chicago kid from the <laughs> south side of Chicago. Very cool. Yeah, I uh, I really enjoyed my, my time there. It was a, a, a good a good period of my life. Um, so once you finished your, your high school career, what was the recruiting process that led you to go to Minnesota? Well, you know, I was recruited nationally. And I got recruited by Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, UCLA, Arizona State, um, Minnesota. I got recruited by Western Kentucky. And um, those are the main schools. And I ended up settling on Minnesota, one, because they were in the Big Ten. Uh, Mm -hmm. Two, I really enjoyed my visit and uh, playing for uh, my coach, Clem Haskins, and three, they had a really good baseball team, as I mentioned earlier. And right. Minneapolis is like a miniature Chicago. You know, when I, as soon as I got to the Twin Cities, I felt like, man, I feel right at home. I'm comfortable. It's a big city without all the big city drama. So it's literally like a miniature Chicago. And when I took my visit to uh, Minneapolis and uh, met the coach, took a tour, you know, got familiar with the city. For me, it was a no-brainer because I'm going to tell you something, Michael. My father, who was my high school principal, a lot of people don't know this. You know, a lot of times, you know, when you talk about basketball, you know, people think it's an urban inner-city sport. When I tell people I'm from Chicago, they think I was raised by a single mom and, you know, played my way out the ghetto. That was not true. You know, my parents were educators with master degrees. My dad was a high school principal, and I attended my dad's high school. But one thing he told me, as the youngest um, kid, um, his youngest kid, uh, my sister played college ball at USC with a girl named Cheryl Miller. Um, oh, my wow, big yeah. sister won two national, yeah, she won two national championships. My uncle played major league baseball. My dad's in the Hall of Fame at his college. So being the youngest, my family was very savvy, Mike. When I got recruited, you know, my family was uh, pretty tempered. They had been through it before. They had been through pro sports. And so my dad said to me, 
you know, this is not a four-year decision. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about that? He said, look, you you choose a school that's going to impact your life 40 years from now. And so I don't know if you know this. You know, I speak to the NBA rookies. I do a program for the NBA Top 100, which is the top 100 high school basketball players in the country. You know, and I also do all my corporate events, all my corporate work. But, you know, I chose Minnesota because 22 Fortune 500 companies are based in the Twin Cities. And my thought was, if I play pro ball or not, doesn't matter. When I'm done playing sports, I bet you I can keep my nose clean and go back to the Twin Cities and have a career, make a pretty good living. And so I chose Minnesota not just because of basketball, not just because of the baseball team. The real winner for me was that there's 22 Fortune 500 companies. We're the only Division One school in the state. And my thought was that life after sports will be really good. And I made that decision, and it's worked to a charm. That's really that's really great to hear, and, and uh, thank you for sharing so much of the uh, the detail behind your decision. Uh, I really enjoy hearing things like that, and uh, I enjoy just learning new things about players that I that I remember from my childhood or that, that I've been researching in, in recent years. Um, so I'm not a huge college basketball fan. I'm primarily an NBA fan, but I, you know I do keep. I would say maybe I'm a casual fan. I kind of keep an eye on it and. But I did see one interesting footnote that I wanted to ask you about. Um, I know you went all the way to the Elite Eight in 1990. And in my research on you, I read that your Elite Eight ring was stolen um, not too long after your college, but it was returned uh, maybe 18 years later, 19 years later. How, how did, can you uh, go into detail about how that happened for you? Well, you know, it was, it was random. Um, my, my roommate and I was, was a college teammate. Uh, we had just gone to the elite eight, mm-hmm. you know, the whole state was enamored with our success being the only division one school in the state. And we lived in this apartment building and one of the managers of the building would just pop by unexpectedly. And it was just kind of weird. You know, he wasn't our friend. He would just always come by our apartment. So long story short, he worked there, but he really came into our apartment kind of scoping it out and wow. come to find out, you know, he ended up, he had a key, you know, he worked in the building so he could get access to every apartment. And so uh, long story short, um, this guy came in and he had a drug problem and he stole both of our rings. And 20 years later, I get a phone call from the St. Paul police and they were like, Hey, we found your ring. And I'm like, Ring, what are you talking about? This is 20 years later. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, look, caveat, the team replaced it, right? And as soon as you oh, know, okay. the program realized our teams, our, our rings had gotten stolen, they gave us new rings because Jostens, which created the rings, are based right there in the Twin City. So they already had a template. They built us new rings, and we moved on. But my original ring was still being involved in almost like a drug trade. You know, the guy's wow. a drug addict, and – so this ring had been trading hands for literally 20 years, and the way that my ring was recovered, the drug bust of somebody's apartment, the cop went in, who was a Gopher fan, mm-hmm. and saw my ring on the coffee table, and he was like, wait a minute, this is weird. What is this <laughs> guy doing with, with Walter Bond's ring? And I know Walter Bond, he's a former Gopher, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, they called me 20 years later, and like, hey, we found your ring. And I was like, what ring? And they finally, oh, yeah, 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 that ring. They said, hey, you want to come down to the police station and pick it up? 
I go down to the police station. I live in a western suburbs at the time of Minneapolis. So to go downtown St. Paul from my house in western, um, you know, western suburbs was a 45-minute drive, maybe an hour. And I was like, yeah, I'll come pick it up. I walk into the police station, and it was like every cop was there. Everyone came out of their office. And I was like, this is weird. They, like, made a big deal about it. And, yeah. and um and I had to, I collected the ring and I had to sign the release paper. And they were like, do you mind if we send out a press release? And I think it was a, a situation, you know how cops get criticized and mm-hmm. you know we always hear about the bad things that they do. Um, but I think that from a PR standpoint, they earned some feel good from that. And so they did a press release on how they recovered my ring 20 years later. And by the time I drove an hour back to my house, every news outlet in the Twin Cities was in my driveway. Wow. And, you know, they did a big story. And it was right before the NCAA tournament. And so, you know, it, it just fit perfectly into the basketball season. And, <laughs> and now it's a part of my Wikipedia page forever. Yes, that's uh, – actually, I saw it on your Wikipedia page, but also there's a uh... – I guess you could call it a Mavericks Wikipedia site, and it was on there as well. Um, so, I, yeah, that's what I wanted to to ask you about. So, I know you finished your your college career in '92, but you weren't drafted. And I read that you were able to latch on with the Mavericks in there um, during that summer leading up to the season. Uh, how, how did that process unfold for you? Well, you know, the, the first job I had out of college, I actually played in the WBL. And I don't know if you remember that league. You could only be six foot five or shorter. Oh wow! And most of the teams, yeah, it was called the WBL, <laughs> and I played for a team in Canada. And the coach never played me, and I was like, you know, I'm coming from a Big Ten school. You know, some of these guys on the team were, you know, no disrespect. They were from all kind of schools: D two, D three, and you know, and, and we were only five hundred. So. I go to the coach, and I was like, coach, you know, I don't play. Like, what's up? And he's like, I don't want to mess up the chemistry. And I was like, dude, we're 500. What chemistry are you talking about? <laughs> like, we, we win a game, lose a game. It was not like we were in first place. Now, if we were in first place, good point, but we were a 500 team. So long story short, I never played. I got paid 200 bucks a game. And I didn't start in college. So that was kind of frustrating. You know, I yeah. just wanted to play. Because I knew I was good enough, right? And um, that fall, and the WBL was a summer league, so I left Minneapolis, went to um, Canada in June, stayed for the summer. And then that fall, I made a CBA team in Wichita Falls, Texas, and I ended up making the all-rookie team. And the next year, I got a chance to try out for the Dallas Mavericks, and the rest was history. But – I mean, you know, a lot of times people look at first-round draft picks and lottery picks and, you know, they talk about pro athletes and put pro athletes on these pedestals. You know, that's not the story for every pro athlete. You know, you got the Mike Isolinos of the world that came out of nowhere, snuck in the back door and made the NBA on, you know, second round or even a free agent. And, um, you know, the lottery picks and even first-rounders, I mean, they got – they got a pretty good deal laid in front of them. But after that, you know, it's pretty much a dog fight. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I did uh, I did see Wichita Falls Texans prior to uh, your time with the Mavericks, but I was not aware of the WBL. I, I think I've heard of that league before, but it's been 
few years. It rings a bell, but I really don't know anything about it. Um, yeah. So, it was fun. You could only yeah. be six foot five. So all of a sudden, <laughs> I was a big man. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and um, it was just weird that, you know, even in high school, I had teammates that were six, eight, six, nine. And so literally, it was the first time since like what we call junior bitty that I played when I was 12 that I was literally the biggest guy on the court or nobody on the court was bigger than me. And that was just weird, man. But it was a fun league. It was a guards league. And it kept my NBA career on life support. And mm -hmm. even though I didn't play, it still just kept me going. And I didn't have, I didn't have much to go on after never starting in college. I only averaged seven points a game in college. Mm -hmm. I mean, so any, any lifeline that someone would throw me, you know, I was receptive. That's, I think that's a really good attitude to have because I know, speaking of your college career a little bit, I believe you, you had a couple of injuries your senior year of college, right? That kind of probably even hurt your chances to, to advance in your professional career. You know, Mike, I'm an award-winning Hall of Fame motivational speaker, mm -hmm. and I had no idea that the struggles that I experienced uh, making it to the NBA, as painful as it was, as frustrating as it was, I wouldn't trade it for a thing because when my career ended, I didn't realize how much value I had, you know, mm -hmm. just by going through the journey. I mean, I'm like Rudy. You know, everybody's seen the, the movie Rudy. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, was, I was the equivalent of Rudy. I had no business playing in, NBA, in the NBA. I had no business. I had no business being there. You know, you, you'll never meet a guy who never started in college, who broke his foot twice his senior year, who only averaged seven points a game in college, make an NBA team. It just is it's unheard of. It doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And I realized I'm very fortunate. Um, I had a lot of things, you know, although it was frustrating up until I made the Mavericks, um, I still had some things that just worked in my favor. And, you know, now I just kind of teach people, how to have a good attitude, how to persevere through setbacks, regardless of what it looks like, keep working hard because you never know when your opportunity is going to come. And we hear people say that. And I'm the living testimony that the only reason I made the Dallas Mavericks is because Jimmy Jackson, who was their lottery pick that year, held out on his contract. Now, yes, Michael, if Jimmy Jackson comes to camp, there's no job. There's no point. job. I don't make yeah. the Mavericks. We're not on this phone right now. I'm not a motivational speaker. And luckily, you know, Jimmy Jackson holds out on his contract, and that was my window. That was my opportunity, and I, I was ready for it. I was in great shape, and I took advantage of it. That's a really interesting point. I, I was going to ask you about Jimmy Jackson and, and that situation, but I – I, I didn't put it together that it directly impacted your chances. So that was a, that's interesting to hear that. So seeing as this is primarily a, a Mavericks podcast, you know, that's the point of your career. I really wanted to speak with you about. So I know you made the team in 92 uh, and you come here to Dallas. What, what were your initial impressions of the Mavericks as an organization? Cause you know, they were pretty successful in the eighties, but by the time you got here, they were, you know, uh, those were some, some lean years. And so I'm just kind of curious what your, thoughts were what your experience was like as, as an NBA rookie on a on a struggling team well it, it was a tough season it was a long season the Mavericks were rebuilding mm -hmm. um, Norm Sanju was the GM Rick Sun was the um, president and player personnel guy and um, Richie Adubato was the coach 
And we had a lot of journeymen. You know, we had a lot of, you know, I would I, I would imagine some people would call misfits, you know, mm-hmm. and the roster was not very talented uh, by NBA standards, but Richie Adubato put together what I thought was a tough team. You know, we never quit. You know, we never threw in a towel. You got a Mike Isolino, you know, tough kid from Pittsburgh. You got a Walter Bond, tough kid from Chicago. You know, we just had Terry Davis, Derek Harper. You know, we didn't have the most talent, but we just were a tough team. And I tell you what, man, toward the end of the season, we went on a winning streak. You know, like it was must have been late March, early April, when most bad teams kind of mailed in. Mm-hmm. And we were on the verge of being the worst team, I think, in the history of the NBA. And we went on a winning streak. And we ended up with 13 victories only because we got on, we got on the winning streak in April. And I think up until that moment, the worst team in history had won nine games. And we were on the verge of being the worst team in the history of the NBA, and we were able to put together some victories late in the season. Yeah. The most teams that kind of mailed it in. But, again, it was a testimony to the character and the toughness of our team. And it might not mean a lot to the average Maverick fan, but when you got, you know, 12, 13 guys who have only won nine games, it's April, the season's almost over. But I tell you what, man, we kept battling. We kept playing hard. And I think we won like three or four games in a row. And for us, it felt like the playoffs. You know, for <laughs> us, so winning, winning four games in a row after just being completely, you know, almost victory boy, you know, for five to six months, you know, it kind of felt like we made the playoffs. But, you know, the Mavericks were in transition. Yeah. And um, they ended up firing Richie out of bottle. They fired Garherd. They brought in Quinn Buckner. Uh, Quinn Buckner lasted I think a season and so it, it was just a dark time you know it, it was um Donna Carter the owner was a very nice guy uh, but pro sports is tricky you know and most owners um don't even understand the sport and you can make an argument I'm gonna talk a little football right now mm-hmm. that, you know some people think you know Jerry Jones you know as an owner you know thinks he knows the sport and so I'm gonna give Jerry Jones the benefit of the doubt because he's won a Super Bowls but for the most part, these smart business guys who bought and sold multiple business, you know, you can figure out distribution. You can figure out textiles. You can figure out financial services. And they think they can figure out pro sports, and most of them can't. And then they're very dependent on who they hire. They have to hire the right GM. They have to hire the right coach. They have to hire the right president. And typically for a pro owner, they're really their their career is based on hiring the right people because for the most part they get out the way. That's interesting to hear. Yeah, I'm not a uh, a big football fan, but you know a lot of my friends are primarily around the Cowboys here in Dallas. So that's uh, interesting that you make the uh, Jerry Jones connection, and I think my friends uh, voice similar sentiments about him. So uh, I, I can agree with you on, on that standpoint. I think. Well, you know, I mean, the Cowboys are a great brand. I think they do a great job marketing. I think their fans really believe every year they got a chance to win it all <laughs> and go to a Super Bowl. And you got to give Jerry Jones credit for that. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, some, you can make the argument that he's too involved and he needs to back up. But, hey, you know, he has a great product. He has a great team. I think he loves the team. I think he's passionate. And when you own a team, it's your right. You know, if you own a team – you know, you should be able to do what you want to do. And there's a whole lot of NFL teams worse 
than the Cowboys. So as far as I'm concerned, Jerry Jones might might might, might not be the perfect owner, but he's a whole lot better than and built a better program than, than most of the NFL. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I could agree with that. Going back to your Mavericks season, were you aware that up until about three years ago, you held a, a record for the Mavericks? You know, I I, um, I got wind of it. I thought that I had one record that was broken this season. I thought I had a rookie record that just got broken, like I had scored the most points in the first three games of any Dallas rookie. Is there another record I'm not aware of? Oh, no, th- that was the one. Um, it, I think so someone else – you had the record for most points by a rookie in one of their first two NBA games for the Mavericks. Um, and then three years – at 25 points, three years ago, a guy by the name of Jonathan Gibson got 26. And then just this season, which is the one you're referring to, Luka Doncic also got 26. So – so, yeah, it's just been uh, surpassed in the past few years. But uh, I thought that was really interesting. And it was actually brought up on one of the Mavericks broadcasts earlier this season, probably the game after uh, Lucas said that. And I, I saw your name on the uh, the just the graphic that, that the broadcast team displayed. And that's what uh, that was actually what got me to, to follow up. I think I, I attempted to reach an email through your, your public speaking business and uh, maybe last year when I was starting this, but I said, you know, I'm going to, I'll send another one. And that's what got this whole connection started was the, the fact that your record was uh, surpassed again. <laughs> you know, crazy. And, and my buddy, I had a buddy of mine that um, is a team doctor for the New York Giants. A guy named Camino Bell. He was a high school football teammate of mine. He called me and told me about it, but I thought he was talking about something else because I have a book coming out in July about the shark, the sucker fish, and the parasite. Long story. Mm-hmm. It's a parable about a shark and a sucker fish that we're writing. And Odell Beckham um, of the New York Giants um, played with some cliques with a shark on it. Because his mentor had seen one of my videos about the shark, and it inspired him to wear some cleats with a shark on it. And my buddy who works for the New York Giants and obviously knows Odell Beckham, when he called me, I thought he was making, I thought he was calling me to congratulate me on influencing Odell Beckham indirectly to have these cleats with a shark on it. (laughs) And he blew my mind when he talked about the rookie record. And I... (laughs) When he called me, I was like, oh, he must be talking about the cleats of Odell Beckham. And he was like, hey, man, did you watch TV last night? I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, hey, you, you, you had a record broken last night. I was watching the Maverick game, and, you know, Donitz or uh, uh, the rookie broke your record. And I was like, you're not calling about Odell Beckham's cleats in the church? <laughs> and he was like, no. Like, what's, what's up with that? And I was like, this is it was just, it was, it was just amazing, you know, to um, – to have a rookie record, you know, that stood that long. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm I'm 49 years old. I mean, I'm, I'm on a verge of 50. I ha- I have my pinky toe in the 40s, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and to battle and fight as long as I fought to make it to the NBA and 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 to go undrafted and to have a NBA record with the Dallas Mavericks that stood, you know, almost 25 years. I mean, yeah. my goodness, man, that that is just. You know, I mean, that's something that that I'll cherish for a long time. 
that yeah that was uh that was really cool and i'd be happy to uh i actually i took a, a little screen grab of it when it was on the broadcast and if you don't have it i'd be happy to email you a, a photo of it if you'd like i still have it in, oh my uh, god in my mike you will can you please send that to me absolutely walter at walterbond.com walter at walterbond.com <laughs> i'm gonna lace my grandkids crib with that yep i will send it to you as soon as we're done recording here tonight not a problem at all Please, man, send it now. Don't wait. Oh. I gotta have that. <laughs> I, I can do that. that I can do Press that. Press right now. But you uh, might forget. <laughs> I am on it. I, okay, so Walter at WalterBond.com. Um, I'm going to send it shortly right now. Um, so, yeah, I was curious if you heard or if you were aware of that. And, I, you know, I know that that was your only year here in Dallas. Uh, were you officially just – was your contract not renewed or were you waived? I know you moved on to the jazz, but how, how were you informed that you would not be returning to Dallas for, for another season? Well, you know, at the end of the season, um, I finished the year out with the Mavericks and I had a one year deal and mm -hmm. I was very hopeful that Quinn Buckner would have given me a shot. And here's why he's a Chicago guy. I'm a Chicago guy. He's a big 10 guy. I'm a big 10 guy. And I was hoping that he would at least give me a look. And, you know, he came in and basically gutted the whole roster and just cut everybody. And, you know, that, 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 that happens in sports. You know, you had a bad team. You only won 13 games. You know, let me gut and start from scratch. Um, I thought it was a mistake. But um, the good news is that the Utah Jazz, a winning team, a playoff team, um, gave me a shot to come out and make their team. And so on, on one hand, I was a little hurt that Quinn Buckner didn't even give me a chance. I mean, he literally cut me in rookie free agent camp. You know, after starting, I think, 63 games with the Mavericks and, 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 and having what I thought was a very productive year. Mm -hmm. I set records. My goodness, yeah. Mike, I got <laughs> records, man. How do you, how do you cut a record setter, right? And, That's um, a good point. It, it, it was bittersweet because the Utah Jazz with John Stockton and Carl Malone and, and Jerry Sloan, you know, invited me out and uh, gave me a chance to make their team. So although on one hand I was a little little upset that Quinn didn't even give me a shot, but then I go to Utah, you know, I make the Utah Jazz team. We go to the Western Conference Final. I get a chance to play with Stockton, Malone, Jeff Hornacek, Tom Chambers. I mean, we had a stack roster, Mark Eaton, mm -hmm. Tyrone Corbin, Antoine Carr, Brian Russell, John Crotty, Adam Keith. I mean, we went all the way to the Western Conference Final. And the first year I was in Utah, Michael Jordan had retired. Yes, right? And so correct. the NBA championship was wide open. If we could have gotten past Houston, you know, who knows? And at that moment, you know, Akeem Olajuwon was playing out of his mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, we lost to them in the Western Conference Final. I played about another half year with the Utah Jazz the following year mm -hmm. and uh, ended up getting cut, went to Detroit, got cut, came back to Utah, and um, uh, ended up finishing out the rest of my career in Europe. So, you know, I had a good career. You know, it wasn't what I hoped. You know, I felt like I was better than 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 what um, I was able to show. But you know, one thing I learned about sports, you know, if you're not a first round draft pick, you know, you're fighting uphill. And, and I really, I really believe if I would have focused on basketball the whole time and didn't have those 
basketball or football, I mean, I'm sorry, baseball distractions. And here's, here's what happens. And I hope, hope this, there's some young kids hearing me, hear me clearly. You know, in the summer, I played baseball, you know, and that's just the family I grew up in. And we, in the summer, that was baseball season. But the basketball industry, when you go to these summer leagues and AAU, you know, the basketball industry is that, that's where you kind of, you know, establish yourself. That's kind of where you, 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 you move up the rankings or down the rankings. And I remember being a senior in high school, I was always ranked 113th in the country, you know, 120, you know, 20 in the country. And, you know, to really be like an All-American and a national recruit, you need to be in the top 100 or less. And I would look at these lists, Mike, and I'm like, I'm better than this guy. I'm better than that guy. I'm better than this guy. That guy's not better than me. But these were, these were fully committed basketball players. And the fact that I, that I played baseball in the summer put me at a little bit of a disadvantage mm-hmm. in the perception of how good I was, right? And so mm-hmm. I kind of fought that perception my whole career. And even in college, I played baseball. And eventually, this is one of the things I talk about with corporate professionals. At some point, you got to get focused. And one of my basketball coaches came to me, and he said, you know, Walter, I saw you play baseball. And you're a very good baseball player. And obviously, you play basketball. You're a very good basketball player. I mean, to this day, when I go home, Mike, some people say to me, even though I played eight years of pro basketball, they say, Walter, you, you picked the wrong sport. You should have played baseball. I mean, that's how good I was in baseball, right? Wow. Yeah. But my college basketball coach was like, look, you're really good in baseball, you're really good in basketball, but do you want to play pro? And I was like, of course. He said, look, if you keep doing this, you won't play pro ball in either one. <laughs> and he was right. Yeah. He was right. I mean, you think about it. Michael Jordan tried baseball, one of the greatest athletes we've ever seen, but he wouldn't. He didn't give himself enough runway to even make it to the major league, mm-hmm. right? The, time, the kind of focus and time it takes to become a major league baseball player is, is just as intense as it takes to become an NBA ball player. And so my college basketball coach really made a lot of sense to me. I walked away from baseball, and that was painful, man. You know, when, when, when Walter Bond walks away from baseball, when you're named after a, hall, uh, um, a major league baseball player. Mm-hmm. Now, let me give you some context. I set a record in Chicago Public League schools for baseball in a playoff game I struck out 19 batters when there's only 21 out, right? I batted over – I I don't know if you know baseball. I batted over 500, you know, in in high school on the baseball team. So I'm hitting over 500. I'm on a pitcher's mound, and I'm basically, you know, an intimidating force. And basketball is very good. It was a tough decision, but it really taught me the power of focus. When when I really focused on basketball – and walked away from baseball. Within two years, I was in the NBA starting for the Mavericks. That's really impressive. And, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know baseball a lot, but I know enough to know that those are some outstanding statistics you just referenced. So that's, uh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, but, you know, once I focus, you know, and, and I want to encourage anyone listening, I know we're talking about the Mavericks, and I know we're talking about history and nostalgia of the Mavericks. Get focused. You know, I think that um, – you know, you can't be a jack of all trades. And that's probably the biggest lesson that I learned from sports is that, you know, at some point you got to make a decision, be decisive, and go for it. And the moment I decided 
on basketball. I became an NBA ball player two years later. And so when I retired, you know, I was doing a couple of different things. And my wife, I've been married 25 years. She says, Walter, I know you're working hard, but you're doing like five different things, right? Mm -hmm. Choose one and get focused on one thing and I'll help you. And for, for, for those of us who don't know, transitioning out of pro sports is very tough. Right, you played sports your whole life. All of a sudden, at 30, 31, 32, it's over, and you don't know what to do next. And I was lost. I was confused. I was doing anything. I didn't say no to anything. I was literally just a lost puppy. And my wife helped me get focused. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Because I understood baseball and basketball. Once I got focused on basketball, I played it to the NBA. And she was like, choose one thing. Your basketball career is over. Choose one thing, and I'll help you. I said, babe, I want to be a motivational speaker. She goes, wow, okay, I've heard you talk about that. You sure? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. She says, okay, I'll help you. And three years later, you know, I doubled my MBA income as a speaker, and about four years ago, I got, I got inducted into the Hall of Fame for motivational speakers. So all the pain and frustration of my sports career, kind of almost getting it, almost making it, almost doing incredible things. I've been able to redeem, you know, myself through hard work of really having success in life after sports. That's, that's really admirable. And that was actually going to be one of my final two questions. What led you into your role now as a motivational speaker? And so I really appreciate you sharing the background and how you went into that. And, um, you know, over the past couple of weeks when that when I knew that I'd be talking to you at some point in the near future I, I've been watching a lot of your your videos on YouTube and I mean you are a incredible speaker I hope I have the privilege of seeing you speak sometime in person um, during my lifetime you know Michael let me let me tell you something man my, my, my oldest brother is a preacher mm -hmm. my mom and dad were teachers so imagine that yeah I got a preacher in my family and my parents were teachers and so as a motivational speaker it's almost like the culmination of my family heirloom or my family legacy. And being a motivational speaker is the ultimate for me because I'm able to take my past, my successes, my failures, my frustrations, you know, and be able to identify with professionals. I don't care if you're in financial services, franchising, sales, manufacturing. I can relate to that person in the warehouse that really believes that they're underemployed or they think that they're overqualified. But I also can relate to that CEO who, you know, is confident, who's trying to take this company to the next level, who's trying to become the next Facebook or the next Microsoft. And so the fact that I came from a very humble beginning you know, for, for, for the fact that I've, I've struggled, that I've been rejected, um, I sat on the bench my whole college career for crying out loud, right? And so, you know, it's really positioned me to be able to relate and identify with just about anybody. And as a Hall of Fame speaker held in high esteem, finally, you know, in this brand new industry, you know, I don't forget what it feels like to sit on the bench. Mm -hmm. And it's really allowed me to be confident and humble. And I have a sincere mission. I have a sincere uh, mission statement 
to help anyone that I meet get to their next level. Because playing pro sports and getting to the NBA was my next level. And it was a battle. It was a struggle. It was painful. I mean, I bled. I cried. I mean, it it was gut-wrenching, but I made it. And so when I meet a person who has a vision, who has a dream, I can relate with them wherever they are on their journey. And my sincere purpose in life is to help anyone that I meet get to their own individual next level. Well, I, I just think that that is so admirable. And, I, you know, I can hear it in your voice how, how passionate you are about, about what you're doing. And, um, I, you know, I think I, I'm looking forward to watching more of your videos. I, I, I find them very – they're just very powerful, and I, I really enjoy listening to them. Usually something I'll just play it while I'm at work lately and just kind of ha- have the audio of it while I'm, while I'm working on something at my day job. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think you do an outstanding job. And, you know, Michael, thank you. Thank you for the time tonight. And, um, you know, I'm writing books and um, we're having fun, you know. And, mm-hmm. you know, one thing I want to encourage all athletes um, who might be listening, you know, whether you're in high school or college, at some point, sport is going to be over. And I want to really thank my parents that they really trained us and raised us. And my sister played ball as well that my father would always say to us, when it's over, move on, you know? And that was just one of his messages. My dad was a quiet man. He was a brilliant man. Uh, he was a very intelligent man. He would always say, when something is over, move on. And so when my basketball career was over, and we see this with a lot of athletes, they struggle because they don't know how to move on. And you can be 35, you can be 40, you can be 45, and still think like a basketball player but nobody wants a 45-year-old basketball player, right? Mm-hmm. And so the fact that I was really conditioned that you, you work hard, you give it all you got, but when it's over, move on, it allowed me and gave me permission to transition out of sports quickly and effectively. And within three years, my wife and I built a business that replaced NBA income. In, in 36 months, think about it. In 36 months, as an entrepreneur, we replaced NBA income. And it's only because a lot of it had to do – and my wife's parents were entrepreneurs. My, my, my father-in-law is an entrepreneur. And so we had support for my family to really be entrepreneurial. And, um, you know, we, we have no regrets. There are some struggles. I bled. I cried. I got my teeth knocked out. But at the end of the day, man, I wouldn't trade anything, Mike. That's, uh, you know, I really enjoyed hearing your story. And I actually have um, one more question. And it's, it's, it's the way I always end all of these episodes when I'm talking to former Mavericks, if you don't mind, if you have a, a couple of minutes. Absolutely. Okay, so I know you were a member of the 92-93 Dallas Mavericks. I'm currently looking at the entire roster for the 1992-1993 Dallas Mavericks. There are 18 names on it, including you. So really just I'm looking for 17 names. I wanted to see how many of those remaining 17 you could name going back uh, 26 years. <laughs> okay, let me go. Um, right. We had Michael Zellino, Derek Harper, Brian Howard, Tracy Moore, Terry Davis, Donald Hodge, Doug Smith, Randy White, uh, shoot, um, Dexter Cambridge. Yep. How many I got? 
You have 10, so there's seven names remaining. Okay, Stephen Bardo. Yep, that was one of them. Kerchitz, Kerchitz, Kerchitz. He was a Russian guy. Yes, yes, that's one of them too. I'm actually, I've, um, he, he just started following my Instagram account for the podcast, so I'm hoping I can get an episode with him. <laughs> okay. Um, we had a bunch of guys come in and out really quick. Hmm. You mentioned one of them I earlier. Mike, huh? You mentioned one of them earlier as, as the reason you were able to get a, or, uh, able to get a spot Jimmy on the team. Jimmy Jackson. Oh, there shoot. you go. Jimmy Jackson. Yeah. Um, you got five more. God dog it. What was the guy's name? <laughs> it was a two guard and he, we, Dexter Cambridge. You had, yeah, you mentioned him. Um, Palmer. No, Palmer. Yep, yep. Walter Palmer. No, yeah. Walter Palmer. So four more now. One of them has unfortunately since passed away. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Sean Rooks. Yep. Sh- Sean Rooks. Yep. Sean Rooks. Twinkle Toe. Sean Rooks. <laughs> he has the ugliest feet you've ever seen. That's why I call him Twinkle Toe. <laughs> That's funny. And I'm, say, ha- I'm happy um, to fill you in if, if you're ready to throw in the wait, towel. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. no okay. No. All uh, right. Brian Howard. Did we say that? Yes. Yeah. You have Brian Howard. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, give them to me, man. I'm, I'm, uh, sure. yeah, no, I, I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, you have Tim Legler. Oh, shoot. Tim Leg, Leg. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't play the whole season, so he was there briefly. Yes, this is the entire, entire, uh, regular season roster. How many games did he play with us? How many games did uh, Leg play? I, I should be able to look that up pretty quick here. Let me see here. Um, if my computer will allow me to scroll. Tim Legler, another tough Thir- guy, man. Just, Mike just 30 games. Tim Legler. 30 games. Okay, so he played a little less than half the season. Yeah. And then, um Lamont Struthers. That's who was in my car. Let me <laughs> okay, oh, give me one more name. There's one more left. Moreland Wiley. Moreland Wiley. Oh, my God, man. Moreland <laughs> Wiley was the leader in the locker room. I can't believe. Lamont Struthers. Let me tell you something. Yeah. You know, and when you hear about NBA players or pro athletes getting in trouble, Please have mercy. Okay, here's what happened. Now, I met my wife in Dallas. So imagine my rookie year. I meet my wife in October, right? And so Mm -hmm. we dated the whole season. So I was a good boy. I was a really good boy. I met and married my wife within 11 months. But Lamont Struthers, he wasn't there 10 games, maybe 12 games. So I'm being nice. You know, he's new to the team, you know. And one day we were riding downtown Dallas. And I'll never forget, it was a police horse in front of us with two cops on a horse. Mm-hmm. Lamont Strother, I'm driving. He reaches over and honks the horn frantically and scares the crap out of the horses. Oh, and man. thought it was hilarious. And thought it was funny. Right? And mm-hmm. so the horses buck, they go up on the hind legs and you know, and, and it was just just completely ridiculous. And obviously the cops once they got the once they got the cop the, the horses under control were pissed. Mm-hmm. So they come to the car, they, they get us out the car, they frisk frisk us and, and search us. And I'm looking at this dude, I was like, You are a freaking idiot. Why would you yeah. why would you honk a horn? And scare horses. Mm-hmm. But the, the cops had no idea who I'm driving the car, mm-hmm. right? 
And I knew at that moment, I was like, you will never ride in my car again. <laughs> and I, I was able, Mike, I did some damage control, and I was like, sorry. I was very contrite, apologetic. And I was like, dude, you are a freaking idiot. <laughs> and if you ever meet him again, I forgive him. But in that moment, Lamont Struthers was an idiot. And he thought it was funny. I was like, what is funny about honking the horn and scaring horses? What's funny about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really you know, not funny. Sometimes it, it, it was inappropriate. It was mm-hmm. random. I, 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 it's not funny, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was 23 years old. Mm-hmm. And if I don't have a, if I have a different temperament, who knows what, what could have happened, right? It could have yeah. become, you know, some racial thing, right? And I was very apologetic. I was like, look, and I told the cops, I was like, look, this dude honked my horn. I'm sorry. I'm sure you're angry. Oh, my God. And I think the cops really sensed my sincerity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they chastised us and let us go. And I was like, dude, I'm going to take you back to this hotel. You're an idiot, and you will never get in my car again. <laughs> well, I think that's the uh, the only story I'll ever hear like that on this show. So, uh, But I, I appreciate you sharing that with me. Mike, uh, I keep it real, man. I'm transparent, and I'm sure he's a good guy. He's a smart guy. I'm sure he's doing well. But I'm like, look, dude, to this day, you will never get in my car again. <laughs> Well, uh, I really appreciate your your time, Walter. I'll I'll definitely send you a link once it's uh, once it's fully online. Love it, man. Send me a link and that screenshot of the record I have. Yes, I've, I I I uh, I'm a man of my word, and I already emailed it to you. Awesome, man. Thank <laughs> you, Mike. This was fun. It was fun. I really appreciate your time tonight, and I uh, I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Awesome. Talk to you. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you, Walter. Bye.